attachment to the unique black community. So there's a lot of history of that thing that I was told by my mother. And other not being wise, I didn't get her to talk and put it on tape so that I could later put it into writing. The only thing I can tell you about fishing and hunting and hair snack was that is one of the reasons we no longer have hair because the group of people that lived there got their earnings from the sea. They were great fishermen. They had fish, shrimp, crabs, and oysters that they harvested. Harrisonette oysters are known worldwide as some of the best oysters in the world to this day. They're known for their blue crab that you will eat from off the day. Harrisonette is an island. I can't remember the name of people. Once you cross that little bridge by the creek, you're now on Harrison. And that was, that's the only way you can get there other than my boat. There used to be a gate there. And under the gate were cross ties because cows would not cross the cross ties. That's how they kept their cows on Harrison and kept everybody else's cows off of Harrison. And there was a gate. And I can remember going down in the summer but when we got to the gate, you had to open it, and when you drove across, you closed the gate and you shut out the rest of the world when you did it. It's a tremendous game, game preserve. Just about anything that runs wild in the woods in Georgia ran wild in the woods in Harris Neck and But they were there. That, like I told you about the fishing, that they, they just knew how to do it. And they lived from the war. As a close bond between humans and non-humans is essential to the indigenous people of the Americas and Africa, behaving contrarily creates discord among kinship networks. Lessons through stories and model behavior on codes of conduct from humans and non-humans are in fact fundamental to the way in which the Mende view the world. As descendants of the Mende tribes, Gullah Geechee also believed that kinship includes non-humans. Sharon Y. Fuller. Welcome to Curious Roots. I'm Michelle McCrary. Curious Roots is a podcast that digs deep into the living earth of our personal, familial, and communal lives to help us understand how we exist in the world today. Last episode, we stepped into the intentionally thwarted promise of reconstruction and the effect it had on the people trying to create new lives after over 200 years of forced bondage. The three million souls who finally began to make home in and around the sea islands of Georgia and South Carolina, thanks to Field Order 15, saw that order rescinded. Their former enslavers moved swiftly to violently force them off those lands. With the help of the quote I read at the top of the show by scholar Sharon Y. Fuller, I want to attempt to contextualize what my newly freed ancestors lost and what Black coastal communities in the South are in continued danger of losing to this day. When my ancestors were forced to the shores of Turtle Island, they came as indigenous African people who were ripped from the context of their own homelands. 
they found themselves in the presence of indigenous people in this new land. Many of my African ancestors who were enslaved in Harrisneck were Mende. They brought the indigenous worldview of the Mende people with them as Sharon Fuller states. My ancestors developed a relationship with this new land guided by this indigenous worldview they carried with them from West Africa. When they were freed from the brutal bondage of slavery, they sought to remain in communion and connection with this land that never failed to hold them spiritually and nourish them. My ancestors had a kinship with the land of Harrisneck and with all its non-human inhabitants. So when the kind of violent, intentional displacement that happened after Field Order 15 was rescinded, the community of Harrisneck lost not only their homes, but the deep relationship they cultivated with the land. The pain of that separation moved through time. It wasn't until I was older that I realized my own family's response to the generational pain of this dislocation was their deep commitment to gathering for reunions. My grandmother recorded some of these family reunions. One that I have is from a reunion program held at the First African Baptist Church in Harrisneck. I think the year is around the late 90s, early 2000s. One of the final testimonies she captures is from Lester Hayes about her grandfather, my second great-grandfather, Isaac Basden Jr., and his wife, Adela Basden. Adela's maiden name was Grant. Her mother was Elizabeth Cooper, nee Grant. The same Elizabeth Cooper who jumped on a gunboat with my third great-grandfather, Lester Grant, bound for Florida from South Carolina during the Civil War. So the family would make it a point to gather from near and far to share their memories of Harrisneck, to share these stories passed down from generation to generation, to share this worldview about their connection to the land from generation to generation. And the stories I heard about Harrisneck came to me in the same way. And it's been interesting to see the outside world view of Black folks from coastal Georgia. And to come to understand that labels like Geechee 
were only known to me when I was a child as an affectionate nickname which described my ability to consume ludicrous amounts of rice. Rice, that I might add, was always in the pot at the request of my grandfather Rufus, whose people were all from South Carolina. But that's a story for another day. The importance of my relatives and ancestors gathering to reconnect and define themselves through their own stories became very clear once I began to sift through how Black coastal communities were viewed with eyes not their own. Sometimes those stories outside of the community obscured this indigenous worldview that they held as they struggled to hold on to the land and the culture and their legacy of hard-won freedom. Other times I observed that when these stories were told with care, they illuminated the beauty of a bent but not broken line of culture that water skipped back across the Atlantic to the shores of West Africa. Milkman was not shouting now. You need it here. Without wiping away the tears, taking a deep breath, or even bending his knees, he leaped as fleet and bright as a lodestar. He wheeled toward guitar, and it did not matter which one of them would give up his ghost in the killing arms of his brother. For now he knew what Shalimar knew. If you surrendered to the air, you could ride it. That was an excerpt of Toni Morrison reading from her novel, Song of Solomon. Though there are snippets of their lives in the annals of the Federal Writers Project, most of that telling was recorded by white Georgia Writers Project personnel who were primed with neo-primitive rhetoric about Black coastal communities that had taken hold of the culture in the 20s and 30s. My grandmother was adamant that the way her relatives were represented in the Federal Writers Project book, Drums and Shadows, was not how her people sounded when they spoke. I think the white WPA personnel were hearing Gullah and translating it into the fantasy stereotypes of Black speech patterns they had ingested probably from the womb. The writers who went to Harris Neck spoke to Eddie Thorpe, whose father, Eddie Thorpe Sr., according to family tea spillage, was my grandmother Effie's father. But I digress. They also spoke to Catherine Bazden and Eliza Bazden. On Sapelo, they spoke with Eliza's daughter, Rosa Salins. They were pressed to share stories about superstitions and conjure as a means to demonstrate the retention of African culture. Yet the most obvious connection to their African roots was overlooked the indigenous worldview that infused their lives and connected them to the land was obscured by the white personnel's excitement to whip up a swirl of haint stories and hoodoo. Author, scholar, and professor Melissa L. Cooper says that the story that centered the humanity of the people of the coastal South would not be recovered until Black women authors like Polly Marshall, Toni Morrison, and Gloria Naylor would reclaim them in their fictional works. Stories like Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon helped to capture the real lived experience of my ancestors. 
the realities of removal after Field Order 15 and the contours of the exploitation and theft endured by Black coastal communities in the South through the 1900s to the present are often missed, especially when the voices of the people from the community are not centered. The stories of Harris Neck I learned came in part through my grandmother's cousin, Evelyn Greer. Miss Evelyn told us that the people of Harris Neck lived off the land and only got things outside the community like cloth and maybe flour. She said the men would take off work during a certain season to slaughter hogs while the kids pickled vegetables that the folks had grown in their gardens. They also fished and hunted on the land. Most of my own ancestors were fishermen. The land was lush with pecan, pomegranate, and orange trees. My other third great-grandfather, Isaac Bazin Sr., was apparently a cabinet maker who could identify trees in the forest simply by smell. Cousin Evelyn said his son Isaac Jr. was a sweet, sweet man, while his brother Mark Bazin Jr. was mean and ornery. My second great-granduncle, Frank Henry Proctor Jr., was the town sheriff, and Harris Nick had its very own post office. Yeah, well, uh... That, well, the grandfather name was was Frank Henry Senior, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Well, that that much. Uh, uh, I think Dick told me that uh-huh. that his name was Frank Henry because Uncle Frank Henry was a junior. Yeah. So I figured if he was a junior, then the the grandfather muscle was a senior. Right. But uh-huh. he said he didn't know. No. The the grandfather, uh, the, the you know. The, the wife's name. The and all I know her name was Margaret, because Mama always told me that I was named after her. Uh, uh-huh. That's all I know, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I know, I always think I know, I know that uh, my daddy, I think, because the daddy, you know, they were two first cousins, Margaret and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the fourth mother, the sister. But now, who were they people? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, um, well, it was uh, my great grandmother name? Was her name Elizabeth Spencer? I don't know. I think it, I think Gladys told me her name was Spencer, but I'm not sure. You see, because Gladys gave me some of the stuff and. Uh, I gave, I had it written down on a piece of paper, and my granddaughter had to have some information, and I think I gave, yeah, yeah, and And uh, if if she gave it back to me, I can't find the paper, Uh, Mm -hmm. but I knew, now, um, I don't know anything about uh, uh, Papa's people, his mom and dad, I don't don't know their their names, Uh, my grandfather, Willis.
I wanted to go to that, you know, who were her people. Mm -hmm. And she was your grandmother. Oh, wait a minute. You you were Uncle, uh, which was Uncle Frank Henry's daughter. Yeah, well, see that that's it. I didn't know none of his. Uh, I knew Uncle Frank Henry had some kids, but I didn't know. And I was thinking that you had to be because Uncle Ferdinand didn't have any kids. Yeah, he got one daughter. He did. Uh -huh. That's my grandmother, Margaret, again, unfurling the Harrisneck family tree with Louise Proctor, a.k.a. Cousin Wheezy. Cousin Wheezy's grandfather was Frank Henry Jr.'s father. She is part of a deep web of kinship ties woven into the relationship the community had to the land of Harrisneck. The connection to the land and kinship ties are central to the identity of the people of Harrisneck, just as it is for the rest of Black coastal communities in Georgia. Returning to Sharon Y. Fuller and her work, Gullah Geechee, Indigenous Articulations in the Americas, which focuses on the people of St. Helena off South Carolina, she posits that the Gullah Geechee are racially Black and culturally Indigenous. Fishing, hunting, and foraging that is specific to the lands of the coast and the sea islands are all ways of life for Black coastal communities to this day. This way of life is an articulation of the African indigenous worldview passed on through generations. So when Courtney Thorpe, a descendant of the human trafficking enslavers who owned plantations on Harris Neck, began dealings with the Civilian Aeronautics Administration in 1931, his aim was the removal of the entire community of descendants of the formerly enslaved people on that land. His actions would pave the way for the U.S. government to declare eminent domain and destroy Harris Neck on that awful day in July 1942. The vicious project of colonization and removal that began against the Creek and Cherokee in their home territories in 1793 continued unbroken with the destruction of the Harris Neck community in 1942. On the next episode... We'll learn more about what happened on July 27, 1942, and unearth the complicated seeds of struggle to regain Harris Neck that were planted in the 1970s and continue to this day. Curious Roots is co-produced by Converge Collaborative and Moonshadow Productions. Our theme music is courtesy of Mackay Beats. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or however you listen to your podcast. Don't forget to check out CuriousRootsPod.com if you want to learn more about what you've heard. Big thank you to our producer, Pat McMahon. My deepest gratitude to Mr. Wilson Moran and to the community of Harris Neck. Big thank yous to Terry Ward and Adolphus Armstrong of Ujima Genealogy. And thank you to my relatives who are now with the ancestors, especially Miss Mary Moran and my grandmother, Margaret Baston-White. Thank you all for listening to Curious Roots. Mm-hmm.